Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Is that good? Yes, sir! I know who I am! Did IQs just drop shot? I could have been. I, I, I have plans. I like this All shit. Is, you know, it's exciting. Dance off, bro. It is your Me and destiny. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And this week we are back with Steven Spielberg's Minority Report. And we're not alone. Lee and I are accompanied by frequent collaborator Mr. Kevin Brackett from the Real Spoilers Podcast. Hello, boys. How are you doing? Yo. Hey. We're so, doing yo. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm> hey. <laughs> did we go back in time to 1990? Uh, no, 2002 <laughs> for this one. Uh, <laughs> and so let's just kick this off. Minority Report came out in 2002. Steven Spielberg directed. This was his first uh, time directing Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise had brought him the script uh, to begin with. Uh, it was rewritten, and uh, Spielberg found a version that he wanted to direct, and they gave us the movie we have. Okay, Jad, what's coming? Double homicide, one male, one female. Killer's male, white, 40. Set up a perimeter and tell them we're en route. I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks. Give the man his hand. The future can be seen. All we have to run on are the images that they produce. We see what they see. There hasn't been a murder in six years. There's nothing wrong with the system. It is perfect. I agree. Murder can be stopped. Tell me exactly what it is you're looking for. Flaws. You ever get any false positives? We are arresting individuals who have broken no law. But they will. The fact that you prevent it from happening doesn't change the fact that it was going to happen. The system can't be wrong. Wait. You say something, Chief? No. You're in a lot of trouble, John. I have a warrant in my pocket that says murder. Don't run. You don't have to chase me. From 20th Century Fox. He set me up. He set me up. And DreamWorks Pictures. Who's the victim? I've never heard of him. But I'm supposed to kill him in less than 36 hours. He's gonna get a get her. Tom Cruise. I need your help. Keep contain information. I need to know how to get at it. In a Steven Spielberg film. I have to know. I have to find out what happened in my life. You tell me. Who was it? Set this up. I don't know. How about now? On June 21st, everybody runs. So Lee, um, did you did you enjoy the film? Yeah, I, I, you know it's weird. This is like the, I think the third time I've watched this, and I had totally forgotten how it ended, uh, right. which is what you want when you revisit whodunits because you're like, oh shit, what a twist! Uh, <laughs> and it happened to me. I was like, I, I kept seeing things one step before it was revealed, and then thinking, well, is this how this ends? That's weird. Uh, I I remember it, it, like there's another half an hour in this on this film to go. How did, how did, how the fuck does this turn around? Uh, so that was great. It it, it 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 um it hooked me back in all over again. I love also with with regards to your theme, it uh 
it works running into the script. Uh, uh, that's also something that they try to do in every Tom Cruise film. Uh, <laughs> but this time they actually made it like a like a father son relationship. So they almost like they've blended Tom Cruise's theme with Steven Spielberg's broken family oh, theme. So that, now they've man. become yeah, one call. beautiful synchronous <laughs> running family. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I love this film. It's, I, I have no idea how long it's been since I watched it, but it really still sticks. It really still um, holds together quite well, and uh, I'm glad I had the opportunity to, uh, you know, try and think a little deeper about it for once. Cool. <laughs> Kev? Yeah, uh, I saw this movie in the theaters back when it came out in 2002. I loved it. I remembered thinking that it was just mind-blowing, everything with the sci-fi <laughs> and the special effects and everything Steven Spielberg. I mean, this movie looked really good back then, and it still holds up. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit dated because of CG and everything, but it still holds up quite well, as most Spielberg films do. But I remember going out of the theater, and when Tom Cruise did the hand thing with the the visual computer screen, and it's right. like, that's that's stuff that we do now with virtual reality. The movie was so advanced and uh you know talk about precognition and everything like uh the technology mm. that they invented that was supposed to be in 2056 or 2050 whatever is like we've already got the same stuff basically and uh aside from maybe telling the future but uh controlling things <laughs> with our vr glasses and and moving our hands to, to manipulate things yeah it, uh, it just all looks a little lamer but it's it's there yeah, exactly so <laughs> I, I i got out of the theater and i remember thinking like that was so cool the, the computer screen thing and the moving his hands to manipulate things uh you know doing like the enhance enhance but with his hands yeah. uh, that that was uh really great and then i watched it one time on home video after that and now it's been at least 10 plus years since i've seen it so i really enjoyed revisiting it very cool uh the one thing that i wanted to get started on uh in terms of a conversation would be the idea of privacy uh you know the fact that privacy is an issue today that the fact that you have ads in the movie that are tailored every time you know john anderton is walking through uh, a hallway or something like that they keep scanning his eyes and he's so many things coming out I, and also you know the, it's funny uh, yeah. I, I noticed that when i the first thing i noticed is back then i was like oh that's crazy that they could be talking to you wherever you go and then the first thing that popped in my head was oh my gosh ads follow us around with our search results and our interests all the time now mm -hmm. yeah. another prediction yeah. of exactly <clears throat> when how that's when that actually started happening it was one of those examples minority reports like one of those films that i always it's like a cultural touchstone I, I don't know if it's a totally if that's like a totally applicable thing or if it's just like my family or something like that i have no idea how wide that goes but uh like there's so many moments in this film where I, I i constantly think about how when it happens in real life i'm like oh shit that's like minority report you know and the ads following you around when when they started creeping up in facebook and like like reading into what you're what you've been doing uh i was like that's kind of like minority report like, I, like there's these weird flashes of the film come back to me like the whole touchscreen thing like you were saying kevin with the ability to like sweep things across and all i literally play it as you said in like vr i played a playstation game in vr once and it was literally just doing that with the screen and i was doing that for about 15 minutes without even playing the game it's like oh yeah this is finally happening the minority report is happening <laughs> and, then, uh, and then lee remember the time that you got your eyeballs replaced so they couldn't track you Oh yeah, I mean that reminded you of Minority Report. That's next week, my eyeball appointment. <laughs> <laughs> my eyeball appointment. Oh Christ! 
But that, I mean, that, that was the, one of the most shocking things is I was sitting there, you know, and my daughters were watching it with me this time, you know, and they, they don't necessarily, they don't have Facebook accounts. I, I refused to get my daughter. She'd been begging me for Instagram. And I said, not yet. You're not ready to understand exactly what that implies. <laughs> you know, the fact that your, your identity is going to be online and everyone will know who you are from now on, no matter if you're a celebrity or not, you know, there is a certain amount of um, handing over some sort of privacy when it comes to that. And I thought it was really interesting because not only is it privacy, it's identity, but there's the aspect right now that there's an overload of information and the possibility of being fed so much misinformation that I thought was interesting. And in the concept of pre-crime, you have that idea of misinformation. And I wanted to take that into a little bit of a political uh, angle with regards to how the Trump administration, you know, uses historical revisionism to kind of make points or try to delete things or try to, you know, change public opinion about certain things. Uh, and I, I was wondering, you know, if we look at how Minority Report dealt with that, with the idea of misinformation, do you guys feel that it's more and more difficult to get the appropriate information for you guys to stay aware of what's going on, to uh, make a, a better decisions about what's going on in the news, the media, uh, cultures all around the world or whatnot? I mean, honestly, it's I do think there is an overload. We're definitely on information overload. We're all, we also are given a variety of biased news sources to where uh, you're not sure if you can necessarily believe what one says and, and then the other one is the polar opposite and you're not sure if you can believe them. So it definitely makes it more difficult as you're bombarded. And, uh, you know, I think that it's important for someone to have a source that they trust that uh, they, they believe is, you know, somewhere in the middle to go to. Because if you rely on things like Facebook and Twitter and people just putting out article after article, picture, you know, there's things that are just completely untrue. There's Photoshopped things and people share it like it's you know, the absolute truth. And uh, it does get very confusing at times if you don't have kind of a go-to source that's reliable. Cool. I mean, it, it's it's something that you kind of, you end up practicing like a wariness with regards to the stories you hear and the news you hear. And I think that's probably a good thing. I think that the fact that uh, at some point down the line, the fact that uh, the fake news has caught on in such in, in the public mindset so well is is just to challenge them on what they're hearing and constantly ask them to look for the right sources or double or at least look at a news source two three times before you start going out and making decisions based off it, you know. Right. And uh, and I think that approach to news is <clears throat> ultimately I think that's a good thing, you know. I think that's that will be a very practical and very reasonable way to approach news as it comes in. I think we were kind of under the idea of the benefit of news. We only get it once and that's us good. Uh, mm -hmm. And we can go out and start talking about it as if we're experts on the subject. I don't know if that was ever a reasonable way to approach stories. Um, so I think that once this kind of changes a little bit, once the whole people manipulating that to the degree where people are being brainwashed, I guess, is the extreme way of looking at it. I guess people are being taken advantage of and asked to stand for things they don't truly believe in or understand under the guise of something that they're not really being told. Uh, that's that's happening a lot. And uh, I think that once that it's reaching a kind of point here, a height where it's kind of going too far and a lot of people are starting to get really hurt in it, uh, that will fade away at some point. There will be a turning point where people will just take on a 
a very wary approach to news and 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 hopefully they'll all that will be something that's taught in schools like you know you don't just listen to one story you hear you listen to three you know and that's it's not something we've had to consider or prepare for before and, and these things do happen that they constantly challenge the cultural outlook on sources like that uh things that we consider a part of normal day life like the news but it's just something, I guess, that kind of now it's it's the smartest way to combat it, uh, and I think that it's it'll teach us that over time. But it, it the fact that we have to go out of our way to do it is obviously a downside to it, and the fact that so many people are being manipulated by these sources to to stand for things that they ordinarily would never stand for is is obviously putting us in a real point of contention today uh so for the next while we're going to be dealing with that but I, that's my that's my positive outlook to the future <laughs> but i agree with you because the way that i think that minority report sets this up is despotism the idea that you'll have one ruling thing over like pre-crime is one of the things that there's going to be one place where mm. everything is filtered through and that becomes like somewhat Orwellian when you look at it. You're like, holy yeah, shit, absolutely. what the, you, know, you can't do that. <laughs> and I mean, that's the kind of thing that I find is absolutely odd with, you know, what's going on in the United States right now where truth is manipulated in a way that I've never seen before. I didn't think that I'd see this in my lifetime because you know, I, won't, I won't say that it borders on, on, on Nazi propaganda, but at the same time, I can't find another definitely example. parallels absolutely you know? you know and so that's where i kind of get a little bit weirded out by it you know because if you look at the theme the theme itself is that perception can be challenged you know for the whole movie and minority report and so you have a choice to see things the way you want them or how they are and that's the mm -hmm. funny thing is is that there is that though the that that dichotomy that's going on right now is how things really are and how people choose to see them and I think it's kind of interesting that that, because of Minority Report, having that as a main theme, it really brings us into today. That's why I think the movie is a little bit more relevant today than when it came out at the time. Like At the time, like even 1948, when um, um, 1984 came out, it was a warning of where the hell we were headed. And I feel like Steven Spielberg did the same thing. Not only mm. with this one, but with AI. He was warning us about that stuff too, you know. Well, so and also you have to remember that this <clears throat> this is based on a short story by Philip K. Dick, the same guy that wrote uh, you know, the short yeah. story that Blade Runner is based on. So he always has been very involved in sci-fi, but to to push philosophical questions. And so right. you have to think back here in, in 1956 he was already questioning this, uh, you know, uh and and uh, uh, believing these uh, precogs and uh, you know in, in the minority reports and that you know are you guilty because they say that you're going to do this uh, and what I've always found really fascinating about this film and this story is is that philosophical question of if you stop someone uh, who is going to who supposedly is going to murder someone and then you put them away for murder can you do that? Because you, sure, you know, this thing said that they were going to do it, but you've stopped them and they technically didn't do it. So is that taking away their liberties and, and their rights? You know, is that something that is okay to do? And I think that that's obviously one of the huge struggles that, uh, you know, uh, Colin Farrell's character deals with, and that's why he's there investigating. Yeah. Um, and so I, I kind of was curious what you guys thought about that. You know, can't, should they be putting these people away for murder 
because, I mean, they technically didn't. None of these people murdered anyone, right? It's just well, the visions that they were going to. Yeah, mm. they they do cover it pretty well. I like the fact that there is that debate in the movie itself when Whitwer actually comes to uh, the, you know to a pre-crime to to show, and then when Anderton rolls the ball across the counter and says, you know, he says, "Why did you stop that ball?" He says, "Because it was going to fall," and he says, "Okay, but you stopped it from falling." He says, "Yeah," and so the conversation that ensues with regards to that is exactly what you're pointing out, mm. where I mean, we stopped it from happening doesn't mean it wasn't going to happen. It was an eventuality. Now, obviously. you know, I don't know. This might be a simplistic way of looking at it, but the reason why a police officer gives you a speeding ticket is so that you don't speed again in case an accident might happen. Mm -hmm. So it's a punishment. Now this is taking it to the level like times a thousand. You're, you're preventing people from committing murder. You know what I mean? It's not the same (laughs) thing as a speeding ticket. Not quite the same scale. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But I mean, I think that as a preventative measure, it could be kind of acceptable, but I don't believe it to be so. You know what I mean? No mm-hmm. matter how much propaganda you shove down my throat, I think that there is a certain manipulation of the truth when it comes to that. And I think that they did a, a good job, you know, when they try to I, hide I these minority even in reports. that example, it's, it seems to me like a pretty flawed example. Uh, it is, yeah, of, uh, Like, what he's trying to get across is, like, determinism, right? You know, it's it's... I mean, if you look at that versus free will... Uh, which we kind of, we understand the idea of free will, right? It's your ability to choose what you want to do. But it, it, like determinism is the the philosophical theory that all events are completely determined by previously yeah, yeah. existing causes, and that uh, you know the idea that the universe is entirely rational and given complete knowledge of any given situation, you can assuredly know any outcome. So like what we're seeing there is like John believing that to be the stance that he has. You yeah. know, like that's him saying it but the way he kind of puts it it, it 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 doesn't really it doesn't really catch all the sort of things and i think you can kind of even thinking about pre-crime because I, I i i just don't think pre-crime in itself really works and i think because you can look at one example of the idea that it's biased from the very root of yep. the of the of the purpose uh, of of its of its intention and then uh, you can kind of basically write the majority of it off, and you don't have to get super philosophical on it. Uh, but I think you can look at the idea that uh, and it's weird. It's like one little detail is that they can only see murders in their visions, and that to me was like sending off alarm bells about how like how the system works, you know? Because I mean, the excuse they give the guy Fletch, he says in response to Danny when he's questioned on it. That's uh, because murder disrupts the binds between humans more powerfully than any other any other yeah. crime, right? So, like setting aside that this that might just be like madness PR talk, uh, <laughs> like, which it kind of did sound like it kind of seemed like something he'd rehearsed. <laughs> uh, and you know, it, it, the fact that they don't know why they focus on murder would be an insane path if they chose that if that's the case if it's a pr thing but there's an obvious bias in that they can only see murders and because of that reason the precogs are seeing visions of what is deemed to them to be the most major breaking of binds between humans but that's just improvable information (laughs) it doesn't really mean anything and it is likely provably incorrect uh you know uh, not that i want to give fucking examples on that (laughs) well let me ask you this though guys so the movie starts off by telling you that the crime rate in washington dc where they are is zero so has has the might 
minority report. It's not the minority report. What's the system called? That's yeah, pre-crime. 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 I, so is pre-crime effective? Their murder rate is zero. That's that's really interesting because, like, to me, yeah. I, it was more. It seemed to me more that it's not that it was working because pre-crime was working, but more that it was working because people thought pre-crime was working. You know, uh, I got like I've got weird like background detail for that. Like, I, this is something Jason's going to bring up as well. It's going to be like the motifs in the film about like mm-hmm. sensation. <clears throat> um, uh, and all right, so like, there's a floating concept about experience and how this informs knowledge in the film, and it's highlighted by using the eye and what I think is kissing imagery throughout. So now, now what I think the film is actually saying is that experiential modes of understanding are no more infallible than beliefs founded around knowledge. So it's kind of a takedown on the system that backs up the precogs and in itself a bit of a nod to how religion works. Uh, but yeah, basically, even, even seeing or touching can't count as true knowledge. So like... My, my threat in this is basically backed up by the, the fallibility of the eyes that the precogs see their visions through, which we get the shot of at the start. Uh, and then there's the kiss of John with Iris Henneman, the, the doctor, uh, which is weird, and it seems out of context and weird when it's happening. And then there's the creator of the precogs. Uh, well, she's the creator of the precogs. And so essentially the, there's uh, Lamar, he kisses Lara, uh, the, the affair at the very start, the and and uh, the guy Howard takes his needs his glasses because he can't see well. This is also a thing. It's, these are all kind of indirect examples. There's also the blind drug dealer who sells clarity. Like these ideas is that belief is something that does not require a sensation to hold. Uh, and so the kisses often imply anything but love or affection, and the eyes aren't necessary to see the truth in any given scenario. So, with the visions being fallible images as well, because we're constantly given that they are, but at least the precog, um, whatever her name is, believes that they can be changed, or you have a choice when she's there with John in the room. Like, the idea is that a belief can exist separate from the truth, and that our tools to seeing that truth are misleading and open to interpretation, but often make us believe in something anyways. So, my feeling is the film skims over a very important idea in that the murders go down because people who may be committing those murders don't even need to have seen the murders being stopped because ultimately their eyes and touch aren't necessary for them to hold a belief that something may or will happen regardless of whether it does happen or not, you know? So, like, the film, like, suggests then that the, the pre-crime itself does not end need to actually exist to convince people to stop murdering because yeah. the circulation of the idea is more powerful than, the, than seeing it and believing it. And that's the same idea as how religion works, you know? You don't really necessarily see these things... But they, basically the film is saying it's kind of pro-religion, it kind of is pro the fact that religion does have an influence, but even and acknowledges though that because a little bit of the information there might not be entirely infallible, that religion, religion is believable even if it might be a little bit of shit. <laughs> they, they even say it in the movie, don't they? They say they compare themselves to clergy. Yeah, exactly. And They're it's not the really temple, cops. You know? you know, that's what I mean. Like it's, There's a, like a narrative there about how they are essentially a church and their job is more important to be seen as people who are preventing murder than it is to actually prevent murder, you know? So, I don't know. I, I imagine in this world, 
if you wanted to try a real world approach that doesn't rely on all seeing magic premonitions, you could be you could be like just disseminating information that loads and loads of crimes have been stopped just because people were thinking about it and it's gonna happen to you and then people will start freaking out and stop doing them. <laughs> so that's a really good point. I like the fact that you brought that up because I remember having a conversation with a person that I used to work with uh, who uh, who is highly religious and um, because I'm an idiot and I was young, I used to kind of just poke at her constantly <laughs> to, to test her faith. And I remember asking her at one point, I says, how do you know, how do you go logically with how, you know, you can't see it. I mean, isn't yeah. mm-hmm. seeing believing, you know, and she used to call me a skeptic. And I was like, I'm more than that. I'm, I'm a prick when it comes to those things. <laughs> and then at one point I said, how can you rationally get to this? How can you rationally prove anything? She says, what does your heart tell you? And that's when I completely lost it. I was like, okay, I have to stop these conversations now because it's just a game. <laughs> but that, the thing that the idea that like seeing is believing, that brings me to the idea, what you talked about, you know, the, the motif that's throughout the entire movie that like Spielberg really hammers home is the one of the eye, mm-hmm. the idea of perception that is going to be throughout the movie. And so I love the fact that a guy who is at the head of pre-crime throughout the entire first act, you know, you have that whole perception, the idea of eyes, lenses that he's using, you know, when he's moving his fingers around and all that. It's essentially changing points of view constantly. And at the beginning of the second act, Anderton is literally given a new outlook on life as being on the other side of pre-crime. And I thought that it was really interesting to see that through the yoga instructor, mm. that as actually her head is completely bent over and she's staring at him through his her legs. I was like, look at that. There's a really interesting visual pun that Spielberg put in there where he's basically saying that Anderton's life has been turned upside down. And I thought that was really brilliant. And the way that they pepper out, you know, the idea of the eye motif is that, you know, eyes can be deceiving. Even in the the introduction of the movie, the whole action scene at the beginning, the man himself says with regards to his glasses, you know how blind I am without them. And that's going to be a callback when uh, Anderton actually has a bite of that really wretched sandwich that's left by the eye doctor. (laughs) And I'll get to that a little bit later. You know, so he buys drugs from the guy with uh, no eyes. Uh, You know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Um, You know, the way to stop, you know, they they have this eye dent that they call it, you know, where they're scanning the retinas in order to get to identification. Mm. Um, He says that he needs a little clarity. That means he needs to see something different, you know, to to have his mind a little bit less cluttered, a little bit more open-mindedness. And I thought it was really interesting for him to be stuck in some form of limbo again. He's a guy who prevents the future from happening, but when he goes home, he's condemned to watching the past, where he's watching the videos of his kids and his wife and all that stuff. So he's kind of living in that never-ending present uh, in terms of PTSD. Uh, Mm -hmm. I love that, the fact that he has to keep running, but he's running from essentially what? From actually dealing with his kid. He's trying to prevent his kid from being murdered over and over and over again by preventing these individuals from actually committing murders. Everybody Uh, runs. Danny Whitwer. Hmm? (laughs) Everybody runs. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, everybody runs. Uh, Danny Whitwer, again, is uh, noted as an observer of justice, or Mm. observer from justice. So that's kind of fun, (laughs) the, the use of that word. They're under uh, operating under Whitworth's supervision, which I thought was interesting. The fact that he has supervision. He's the one that's overseeing all of this. Um, 
And I thought that it was interesting that the guy uh, just above the pool would say, we see what they see. So there's a vicariousness uh, about that as well, you know, where you're not necessarily basing yourself on your own perception of things. You're basing it on other people's perception of things. And that's where pre-crime becomes a problem is that you don't necessarily have any tangible proof of what's going on. You're actually basing yourself on somewhat, you know, visions or pre-visions. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought that would bring us to the sandwich, which I think is really great because the sandwich, if you can't really see something tangible, if you have no visible proof of anything, it might be something bad. You have two different versions of the same thing, one that could actually be tainted and one that is actually the good one, the one that you're supposed to have, those two different ideas, you know? And so it's a really interesting concept to me, the fact that they use the eye, the fact that, you know, he has his eyes replaced literally in this case, you know, as, as as a metaphor for now I can see again, you know, the idea that Jesus cures the blind some way, mm. you know, now he can actually really see, which is something that Agatha constantly tells him. Can you see? Can you see? You know, do you understand what the hell's going on? As more, <laughs> do you want more the of the nice question sandwich? that she's trying to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I had another question for you guys, another philosophical question. So um, I've always been fascinated with time travel. I've talked about this on Real Spoilers. Uh, I may have talked with you guys about it, but anything involving time travel and whether it is, uh, you know, destiny, is is your future predetermined or can you change it? Can you go on an alternate timeline, like Back to the Future style? And it's really interesting. One of my favorite movies of all time is The Time Machine. There's the 1960 version and then there's also the 2002 Guy Pierce version. Uh, I love the book by H.G. Wells and I love both the movies. But the 2002 version does something very similar to this uh, when we're talking about destiny and and predetermination. So so in the 2002 version, as opposed to 1960, they add in a backstory that he's going to be engaged. The time traveler is going to be engaged to his wife uh, to be married. He is engaged and then she dies. And so he goes and descends into madness, creating the time machine to save her life. Whereas in the original book, in the original movie, he just wants to time travel travel and see things just a weirdo (laughs) yeah yeah so so what's great is in 2002 version what i really love about this is he descends into that madness he creates the time machine to save her life and he goes back in time and saves her life only to cause the reason that she is killed afterwards and then he goes to save her life again and stops her from being killed this way and then him doing that creates a series of events that gets her killed another way. Right. So it's really fascinating. And it brings up the same question. Can you change the future? Can you actually prevent things from happening or is uh, the future predetermined? So um, in this movie, think about this. I don't know if you guys caught this upon your viewing this time, uh, but um, when John Anderton is accused of murder, he he is set on a path which leads him to murder someone. He was never going to murder someone, this person mm-hmm. he would never get to, unless he was accused of murder and put on the run, right? He would have never been taken down that path, or would he have been taken down a different way? I mean, that's the question. But I, yeah. Did, it's, so yeah, it's just, was like he would, yeah, exactly. That's, why, that's what why the film wants. That guy that's what I think unless, is interesting. I think the film yeah. wants you to think that... that to me, there was a lot of little contrivances and conveniences that made him do that. You know, like he gets asked <laughs> very conveniently by uh, his his boss, whatever you call him, 
Uh, I can't remember his name. Lamar. Uh, Lamar, yeah. Lamar, yeah. He, uh, Lamar, he, like, he's like, come on, come to my house. You'll be safe here. Like, if we just keep you hold up for a couple of days, it'll all pass over. And he's like, no, I just got to keep driving. You're just like, but no, but like, that's how it works. You you work, you do this. If you haven't, if you can't be there, then, then you're not, then you're actually going to spoil his plan. So just turn around. It's like, and then on top of that, like, he just happens to get off the train and all that, and then ends up in the exact same, like, apartment flats and all the yeah, There's so many series of events that it just, like, it just skims over the how and why he ends up in all the world at this one apartment flat, and then he just starts deciding to follow the path, you know? There's loads of things where, like, where he's he's now in the room, and he's like, I'm going up there, and I, hopefully when I get to the room, I don't shoot the guy. You know, like, I, you know? I, I can it. I'm not going to kill him. I'm telling you, I'm not. But it's like, your whole life and career, I should say, is based on the system of the pre-cogs are telling you what you're going to do, right? And he yeah. he has believed his whole life in, in arresting people because of what they're going to do. And then he's like, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, yeah, like, so, exactly. Uh, I'll get into that a little bit after, but I mean, doesn't that bring up the Matrix when Neo goes to visit the Oracle when he breaks the vase? You know, she says, "Now what's going to really fuck with you is the fact that had I told, had I not, had I not told you about it, would you have broken it anyway?" Yeah. You know, and so I think that's really interesting because had there been another cop that would have caught that ball and had decided to hide it instead of telling John. Would John have committed the murder anyway? So that's that's the, that's the point yeah, where you so, kind of break yeah. it in. And I yeah, think this, that no, this, I think that if had he not known, had he be, had there been another dude, then then John wouldn't have done it. How would he? Yeah, how would he have ever gotten to that point to well, where this, Lamar frames him? I mean, yeah, it, it's like it all <laughs> that, based on a series of events. And so I think it's fascinating to dissect these. Things. I, I, I have it. a conspiracy theory about this, by the way. So I'll, cool. I'll give you this. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. But, uh, I'll just quickly say about the whole thing. This is what I mean about the system being biased. Like the fact that they can only see, right. they only see murders. It, it, it sets up this idea that they that they actually are deciding what counts as like a worthwhile crime to decide, or it's being decided for them in some way by some arbitrary system that they can't measure. Like the fact is that this this seems to be in some way premeditated therefore the information you can't base a legal system around this because yeah. it's from the very top a flawed system so you can't the, the idea in this case when it comes to pre-crime is that this couldn't happen you know like there shouldn't happen because it doesn't really make any sense because the information is too shaky and weird to ever use in the like in the justice system <laughs> this sort of thing but uh i'll say that if if you're buying into like the concept of it i have a conspiracy theory about and it plays in with the the who done it nature of the film right um yeah so what if I told right? So what if I told you the man at the start of the film who gets arrested hard um, was the attorney general's brother? Okay, so we don't know that in the film, obviously, but speculation-wise, okay. what if he had yeah. been the attorney general's brother? Well, the attorney general would probably want to have uh, pre-crime analyzed, right? So he sends his guy Danny, setting paranoia through the ranks of pre-crime, and and uh, your guy. Uh, Burgess, whatever is Lamar, uh, sets. Uh, he gets. Set, he he starts to freak out, and he sets up his right hand man John like he would. Uh, he, he this guy happens to also be a trigger happy fucking murderer in the past, so this kind of ties in. But there's he uh, he sets up his man John as he does in the film, and that sets in 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 motion the events of the film itself, right? So it, everything happens the exact same way. 
but we now know that the Attorney General's brother, it all kind of ties to the film. So, what, I, what if I told you this hard was framed? <laughs> because Oh, nice. Because that's, <laughs> that's the system we're working with here. Not one based entirely <laughs> on knowledge, but on speculative assumptions based on behavior. So in this case, it could, not, it could make sense to assume that we're showing Howard for a reason other than he informs the audience how pre-crime works, right? But who framed Howard? Well, the precogs, obviously. Agatha knows that Burgess killed her mother, so to pro- so you know to to protect pre-crime, and so he would he could assume we could assume that she could assume that he would do it again if pushed, if made paranoid. So she gets. The uh, the attorney general's like lapdog in on the scene to make it seem like <laughs> near retirement day that the whole thing's gonna fall apart, you know. And so nice. it sends John inevitably to seek the truth and expose his boss, and thus finally frees the precogs, who would be allowed to escape on the back of finding out that Burgess has killed Agatha's mother. So the final shot that reveals our genius schemers that long take that goes out of the building when they're in this cozy little hut and then hovers above them for a while. It's supposed yeah. to synthesize that they got away with it. The whodunit was really about the precogs sneakily devising a series of action plots and that, getting man. away with it at the very end. And all you have That's to do awesome. is just read into one character. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this, this, the system's is is a total fucking joke, and you can literally make up shit, and you, <laughs> and it would still unfold the same way. <laughs> But that, that's that's great because it actually plays on to something that I had, which is the uh, I, I had I had talked to Lee about this, where I thought there was a little bit of a, a Hitchcock thing going on in this one, hmm. uh, and you know I try to base it a little bit on the uh, transference of guilt theme that you find in Hitchcock's you know uh, Rear Window, you have it Strangers on a Train, I Confess is probably the most blatant one, and so it's the idea that you know you'll have the main uh, villain who is guilty of the crime but what he does is he tries to have someone else blamed for the crime mm. and so in this case you'll you'll have that through Anderton who is actually going to be guilty of committing a crime but only because the actual villain has committed a crime now usually in Hitchcock they're tied to the same uh, crime he's accused of murdering someone but it wasn't him the actual murderer is someone else right. in this case I, the audience doesn't know that Lamar is guilty until the end so like it brings up the whodunit that you were talking about mm. Lee but the variation comes in the form of the setup, you know. So the thing in, in wanting to absolve himself of the crime, Lamar shifts the blame to Anderton and tries to have him framed for the murder of an individual he doesn't know who presumably kidnapped his son. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I thought that was really interesting. So if you look at it in a sense, Lamar is transferring the guilt onto Anderton in order to save himself and to save his legacy in terms of pre-crime. But if we add Lee's conspiracy theory on top of that, there's another transference of guilt going on as well, where you have the precogs that are trying to set up Lamar, which is interesting because yeah. it doubles they're, up. They're playing you know, on they're playing on, on his view, on you know. what they know he would do because they know he's a fucking murderer. <laughs> so they're like, ah, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I love that. You know, I think that's fascinating too, though, because that would make for a really interesting movie. That you've got these precogs that are, I mean, they're enslaved. They don't want to be there, and they're being yeah. used because of their abilities. And so they could just think up or dream up a, a fake, you know, that's what I mean. The system's biased. They can fucking path. fuck with people. I mean, <laughs> it would be fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
That's what I mean. Uh, you can't trust this fucking system. Everyone in it. There's like, even the guy who monitors it. John is 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 a, is a schemer. He literally gets run into a situation where he's about to kill a guy because he does have a motive, and even he's like, "It must be Danny. Danny set me up." You know, like so, the, the, the transference of guilt goes even a step further down. It just comes back up after he finds out that you know, like, well, he never find, he finds yeah, out way yeah, later. Yeah, you're right. Danny, Danny Whitwer, man. The That's audience good. knows that Danny's killed by Lamar because. Well, we see it (laughs) exactly and then he's framed for that one too that's the other thing very cool i love that Mm -hmm. uh the last thing i want to bring up before we close this down is um whenever you talk about eyes there's always one thing that comes up uh, the plucking of the eyes and whatnot that's going to be oedipus sophocles is oedipus rex and i kind of kicked on it this time i'd never noticed it before and i was like huh You've got the father and Lamar. You've got the mother and Iris. Iris, again, another pun for, uh, you know, eyes. <laughs> I don't know how I didn't fucking see that. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then you'll have Anderton, who's who's the, the supposed, you know, uh, adopted child, if you will, of, of this these people. Mm. And so what I did is I, what I normally do, I like to find an article or something like that. That's uh, kind of interesting to see if I could find something, an analysis of, of uh, minority report uh, through, you know, the lens of Oedipus Rex. And then surely enough, yes, there was, I found one uh, from uh, Catherine Roundtree from the San Francisco young Institute called myth shadow politics uh, and the perennial philosophy and minority report, where she analyzes the film from the perspective of myth and ties it all to Oedipus Rex. Amazing. And I thought it was really cool. Uh, she explains that the precogs are representative of the Oracle in Delphi and that Anderton is representative of Oedipus. Mm-hmm. Um, she shows that the similarities when Anderton is accused of murder, he can't believe that he's actually going to kill someone, which, uh, and I did the research for this, which echoes the line in Sophocles when Oedipus is talking to Creon and it's on line 603 and he says, no guilt of blood shall rest on me. You know, so Anderton's like, I didn't do this. You yeah, guys, yeah, it, I'm, it, I'm it, trust me. It, yeah, so everyone runs, yeah, right? Man. And so it's the same thing as, as Oedipus was saying. So he, he's, he's basically saying, I won't be proven as this murderer. Uh, Dr. Iris Hinneman uh, can be considered the Munrisa Yocasta, uh, which could explain that weird incestuous kiss that she has with Anderton there. there you, you know, go. the uh, idea yeah. that she's actually... They do even reference, they I, reference the Oracle that, they, that the system for the precogs in the film, they do say, oh yeah, this is like the Oracle, you know, the... Even even the oracle got scribed down by monks or whatever. That's what they say in the film. The cops say that when they're in the room. So I mean, the, like it literally does right. draw attention to itself. It, it's very likely it, it was based around uh, like a, a reshaping of the myth. Yeah, I think that's great. And I mean, even if uh, like I mean, Rantry even points out that um, Henneman could be somewhat like the Sphinx. And because she asks John lots of questions. So these are the riddles mm. that basically she's trying to get through. So she's at once the mother, but also the one that sets a little bit of the trap. Um, and so I thought that was cool. You know, she talks about the minority reports in that case. And so I thought it was really interesting to be able to find a reading of minority report from like this really old Sophocles text. And yeah. Like, this is great. Amazing. I love that. <laughs> you know, and obviously, you know, we'll bring back the idea of, uh, Water, I think, was another motif in the film, but I don't really want to get into that. You know, we're bringing into what we were talking about on Blade Runner 2049 with the symbolic of the unconscious. So the idea that Anderton runs in the rain and all that. So he's kind of revisiting his unconscious or subconscious, if you will, uh, trying to get a little clarity so that he can kind of go back in and face the, his dead son through the videos and whatnot. So I thought that was I, kind I, of cool. The fact that the um, the uh, precogs are in that yeah you know, so they act as a giant brain uh, for in the temple you know so. i like the um i like the hypocrisy of a film that has a character 
uh, say, don't, you know, careful digging up the past, all you get is dirty, and then it's literally framed itself like a really fucking old myth. <laughs> it was yeah. like... Mm. But uh, well, it's a bit. But that, that, I remember <laughs> groaning at that line, though. <laughs> you know what's interesting like, is, uh. you know, Spielberg, one thing he doesn't do is put a really nice bow on things. Um, you know, there is somewhat of a happy ending, but there's no closure for the the death of his son, which I thought was really interesting. You know, you think there is, but it's a red herring. Uh, you know, the fact that they just leave that is that we don't. It's a we little bit of closure. They have they they clearly get over it. She's like his his wife pregnant. is pregnant again. So I mean, well, no, she is, but we never. You know, he he's doing all this because of the death of his son, and you know, you would think that oh, we got the answer. Oh, it's this oh my guy. god, are we guy? having a mimic but moment ne- again? Is this like a oh, we can finally have a baby? <laughs> we can finally have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I just thought it was oh, interesting that this I movie even doesn't put that together. Yeah. find it, you know, find the need to to actually, you know, tell you who did it or 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 find out this, and and he doesn't get closure in that way. Uh, you know, he moves forward with his life, but uh, I just thought it was interesting. I, yeah, to wrap I, I do think up. it's a really it's a clever thing because, well, first of all, not everything needs to be tied, and a lot of things that maybe didn't have to be tied get really neatly tied, um, but. It's the idea that they do use that as a whodunit device, you know, when it kind of it's like that spark mm-hmm. where you're in the room and he sees the pictures, like, oh shit, he's he's been lured to the one thing that would, he would kill someone for is this child's killer. Someone has set him up, but you don't know he's been set up. You're like, whoa, this he's found the dude. This would work out. Uh, like it is, like, it's a genius stroke to have established that, and then you know, it, it, knowing that at some point that's bound to come up, that's bound to come up, and when it does come up there, and then never comes up again, like in the in the text of the movie, you're like, oh, so I guess he really just did lose a kid, <laughs> uh, and like he did that, that framed his character, but the, you know they still use it, but they don't like try to resolve it. I mean, how could like it's it's Spielberg's broken family? He doesn't resolve that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I mean, what, what would what would you guys say is the overall message of Minority Report, or the the one takeaway that you have from this film, where you could actually consider uh, telling people to watch this? For what reason? I'll start with Kevin. Well, I you know I'll kind of reiterate what I said earlier. I love it because it's smart sci-fi. There's there's enough action in it. Uh, it's it's entertaining on a blockbuster level. When I saw this in 2002 in the theater, I was a kid. I was pretty young, and I enjoyed it and was not thinking about it from the philosophical level. And so it worked for me then. I remembered I loved it. I bought it on DVD, and then now I've I finally watched it again. And now I'm looking at it from this you know philosophical uh, predetermination destiny type thing. And I love that right. conversation. Uh, but still, I really enjoyed the action. I enjoyed uh, the the whodunit type of uh, thriller aspect from it. So I, I really think it's a well-rounded movie. It's very well done. Uh, the special effects and everything, while a bit dated, still hold up. Uh, and it was very... Um, it was very uh, precognitive in its own right mm. uh, for, for <laughs> today in society, whether it's techno- technological or the themes. And so I think it really holds up because of all of that. It, it's a very well-rounded film. It's very true. And I, I, I personally, I love that they have a big giant glass slab that comes out of one computer and, and gets inserted into another with like three images on it. And they have to, like, oh yeah, the future is still like laborious and unnecessarily fucking mundane. Uh, yeah, the uh, so sh- screen sharing yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's always little bits like images there here and there that are like ah, that's ah, it's a little. 
Maybe they went a little too far. A little Spielberg does love his like mechanisms. <laughs> but you know what though? What's funny is go back and okay, so go back and watch a movie from twenty years earlier. Let's just say go watch nineteen eighty, nineteen eighty two movies revolving around computers and technology and future, and they're just awful and don't <laughs> even get close. Unleash to all the like hamsters. <laughs> this is how yeah. we'll generate the electricity required to power our supercomputer. <laughs> it's you know, it's just funny as we get away from it. So like when we were growing up we were watching movies from the 80s and we were watching terrible computers and hacking and and all that kind of stuff and so you know we don't realize how much time is between that but it's like go back and and you know that movie was 16 years ago but think about the movie 16 years ago from this film and it's like wow this movie really did so much more with that yeah you know than others have done in the past yeah absolutely I think there's probably well, I mean this this was a film noir, right? So that's kind of cool. But he did base himself a little bit on Blade Runner, so we're talking about twenty years apart in this case. And I think it's kind of cool because uh, what happened with the fact that sci-fi went the direction it went is because a lot of people in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s were overshooting the expectations mm-hmm. of where the hell the year 2000 was going to be. This was the new millennium. I remember my father telling me, he says, "You know what?" It sucks because I thought that the year 2000 was the future. First of all, I'm here now, and it's very disappointing. Not only because we don't have any flying cars, it's just how, it's just how so much everything is so much the same as it was. And everything's just, you know, you know, you look at the 80s and how flamboyant they were when you look at fashion. And I think that this is a good job what Spielberg did. He did add flourishes of 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 what technology would Most be like of there which is were a flying quite car. Realistic. <laughs> But at the same time, if you look at fashion, they didn't go out yeah. of his way to actually change much. They actually do look like cops. No, and, and, and what about self-driving cars? I mean, he took it to the extreme, but they're a real thing now. So yeah. it's crazy that he predicted, not necessarily predicted, but he showed that, yeah, you know, there's going to be these kind of self-driving cars. And remember, that's the film takes place 30 years from now. So we have Teslas now driving themselves. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this whole system of commuting that they show in the film, like in 30 years to go from what we have to that is not you know, outside the realm of possibility. Or is it? Oh, well, well, <laughs> or is it? Yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, I'll say like... <laughs> Lee, final yeah, thoughts. I, when I, being real about it, the thing that I, I did take away from this film before and that is sticking around is the whole like police state idea, the idea that these cops will be able to prevent stuff. Yeah. I think that really does stand the test of time. It is a good updating of a warning that these are the various forms the 1984 allegories are might be taking in the nearer future uh i think it's still it holds up it's very i mean obviously the whole fucking oracle shit maybe not so much but the idea that the people are, are being judged on crimes that they, before they've committed it based on data and information that is just circling around or and uh, now that we're in the fucking facebook world where everybody knows what i buy on amazon is you know it's 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 a it's not beyond the realm of possibility, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I, general theme: it's it's uh, it's the future scary, the past is shit. Uh, <laughs> minority Report, <laughs> yay! <laughs> yeah, I get it. I mean, I, I, I'm just gonna say, yeah, you guys should definitely watch it, especially now. Especially now, I think with everything that's going on right now, it's kind of interesting that um, you know Spielberg. This will still be relevant for the next, uh, let's see, Trump's been in office for 395 yeah, days up yeah. to now. What's that time? So for like the next three. couple of years, <laughs> this will be very, very relevant as a film. So they should re-release this <laughs> in cinemas right now. 
because this is uh, to me this is uh, Spielberg's version of 1984. Mm-hmm. If you look at it uh, very carefully, I think that that's what it is. And it's interesting, too, that, you know, uh, even if you look at the precogs, the idea that they're talking about, um, you know, uh, solving crimes in a way, murder mysteries and whatnot, the fact that all the precogs have names from authors that are from uh, from uh, that, you know, so Agatha Christie, Dashiell Hammett and Arthur Conan Doyle. These are all people that are trying to solve mysteries and whatnot. So, I mean, it's kind of fun that they're calling back to the past while relating to the future. And so, you know... I, it's it's really good. I, I agree with with what Lee said that the, you know there's a lot of contrivances you know throughout the entire movie where you're like hey cutting cutting corners there cutting corners there and I think <laughs> still that gotta that, make that blockbuster idea. chase scene pop you know. <laughs> well, yeah, but at the same time, I think that that's the point yeah. though because pre crime is cutting corners mm-hmm. as well, and so if you have that in your edit in your script. Uh, then it's no wonder that they're doing that. And I mean, that's what it is right now. History, the way that we're looking at it through the lens, that's what's what's going on in the media right now. People are cutting corners. They're jumping from one conclusion to the next. And you're like, dudes, you got to check out facts. There are facts. There's reason why there's investigations and not just basing ourselves on what someone else said. You got to look it up. You got to check things out. You got to find the minority report. Ah, there we go. Tied it up real nicely there, Kevin. Kevin. Good man. All right, so let's close this out. Kevin, how about you let everyone know where we can find you online if you want to be found, of course. We have privacy issues, obviously, <laughs> so I'll leave that up to you. No, I, I put it out there at least every week on the on my show, so no problem. Uh, I appreciate you guys having me on again. Thank you so much. It's always fun. Uh, if you want to listen to me, please uh, listen to Real Spoilers. It's such a fun show. We have uh, four yeah. or five guys dissecting the latest movie. Uh, it's not necessarily the movie that makes the most money. Uh, we try to find the movie that's going to be the most fun discussion, so sometimes it is a big blockbuster like Transformers which is total trash but sometimes it's like a little misfire like the cloverfield paradox that they put on netflix and there's buzz around it so we're like we gotta talk about this thing um, so you can find us at real spoilers on twitter uh, you can follow me at kevin r bracket bracket with two t's on twitter and then uh, join us on facebook where uh, you can follow and like real spoilers and we have something called the league of show shares which these guys know what it's all about uh, we discuss yep. everything movies uh current movies old movies music television you name it but uh people are very interactive there we love uh the the fans of the show that have become a part of this extended family so uh, check out the show and then join us there if you feel so inclined cool yeah and that's real r-e-e-l spoilers okay just to make sure i had a couple of people tell me like i looked up for real spoilers and i was like come on yeah, we're all we're, we're all talking about, about fake spoilers use your days. fucking brain <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you can look us up on, on SoundCloud and iTunes, Google Play. It's a, it's very easy to find us. We're a very specific name. Uh, on Twitter, we're at AtlanticSC. Uh, I, I'm running it at the moment, so I mean, you can send me a line or something if you want to fucking call me out. I'm also on Twitter at my own name, at Lee Paul Brady. So, <laughs> uh, yep, yeah, and uh, yeah, that's, that's it. That's where I be, so... Yeah, Jason. <laughs> cool. So I want to thank you guys all for tuning in, and I am going to see you next time. Bye. <laughs>
this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.